Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen. My name is Paul Diggle, Deputy Chief Economist uh, at Aberdeen, and today I'm joined by Luke Bartholomew, a uh, familiar co-host of the podcast. And today we're talking about the outlook for monetary and fiscal policy in the coming recession especially in in the context of the US, the UK, and Europe. And we've spoken a few times on the podcast about why we are forecasting a global recession, and that call has indeed, I think, become much more consensus over the past few months as the, the drivers of the recession have become more evident. But now we want to move the analysis on a step further and think through what monetary and fiscal policymakers should and will do, because those might be different, in that recession. And that, of course, has wide-ranging implications for financial markets as well. So is it back to negative rates and quantitative easing, or will persistent inflation mean that interest rates remain high even as recession hits? And on the government side, do does fiscal policy spend big to support the economy, or are governments constrained by what markets will fund and, and what governments can afford? So a lot to discuss. Let's get into it. Luke, so I've spoken there about the coming recession, but really there are at least two, maybe three distinct shocks shocks hitting the global economy. The energy price shock in Europe, the monetary policy tightening uh, in the US. How do those different drivers of recession affect what an optimal fiscal policy response would be? Sure, thanks, Paul. So the first order effect of a change in fiscal policy is that it does have some impact on aggregate demand in the economy. So easing fiscal policy, which is to say cutting taxes or increasing government spending, tends to boost aggregate demand, all else being equal, and vice versa for tighter fiscal policy. Now, that's not to say that fiscal policy doesn't have an impact on aggregate supply. It absolutely does changes in what the government invests in, how much it invests, um, the way in which taxes incentivize or disincentivize certain behavior, will invest in how their spending decisions work. Ultimately, a lot of these actually pin down the productivity in the economy. But those kind of fiscal decisions that affect those things tend to play out over a much longer time horizon. So you might think on the basis of that, that fiscal policy has an important role to play in stabilising demand in the economy. And certainly it does have a role to play in the sense that it's sort of, there are automatic stabilisers that tend to work so that when the economy is in a downturn, fiscal policy tends to automatically ease through increased spending on say unemployment benefits or other welfare payments and vice versa as those things get turned off as the economy improves then fiscal policy tightens. Then, So it does tend to have this sort of automatic stabilising role. But in the current division of labour, as it were, between the different policy levers, monetary and fiscal policy, our current setup tends to put much more weight on the role of monetary policy as the key demand stabilisation tool. And there are at least two good reasons for that. The first of which is, given what I was saying about the role in which fiscal policy plays in determining supply side policies in the economy, but also the important role it has within redistribution and other uh, priorities that the government might have. Sort of changing fiscal policy in response to demand conditions might upset those kind of things, or it's better if there was long-term stability around those questions. And second, because 
questions of government spending and taxation are inherently very political. There tends to be quite a convoluted political process that has to be gone through before there can be a change in fiscal policy. And so in that sense might make it uh, less nimble and adapting to changing demand conditions. So that's why we tend to think monetary policy, which can respond more quickly with changes in interest rates, are more appropriate. However, there is one huge exception to this, and that's when monetary policy is constrained. That is to say, it's unable to provide as much support to the economy as would be optimal, which is typically the case when interest rates get stuck at the effective lower balance. So interest rates can't be pushed any lower, uh, and unconventional policies might have less traction on the economy. In that case, it absolutely is optimal policy for fiscal policy to be involved in also boosting demand. Yeah, so that that framework of differentiating a supply shock versus demand shock strikes me as, as absolutely crucial because Europe's shock is first and foremost a negative supply shock that can't but make you poorer in some way in fiscal policy's role is to to redistribute and protect the most vulnerable in that situation and ideally without doing outright stimulus that makes the inflation pressures worse and then the us's case is perhaps something akin more to a demand shock or at least but one deliberately engineered by the central bank to reduce inflation of course and we think right luke that um that zero lower bound episode, and we'll get onto this, could strike in the US, and that gives a lot more scope for fiscal policy to take up some of the slack. Exactly right. But then that raises the question outside of optimality, what kind of policy actually ends up being delivered? And as we are recording today, it is the date of the US midterm elections. And so while we don't know the results of that, I think it's pretty clear that those results will have important implications for the kind of fiscal policy that the US is able to employ next year in the course of this recession that we're expecting. Indeed, it looks pretty likely that the Republicans will take uh, at least one House of Congress, if not both, and that means divided government, um, and therefore much more difficult when a downturn comes to pass any sort of meaningful fiscal Stimulus, partly because the Republicans are at some level ideologically opposed to using fiscal stimulus in those kind of circumstances, partly because it's very difficult to get cross-party agreement on the kind of taxes that should be cut or the kind of spending that should be prioritised, and also partly because I suspect there is at least some part of the Republican Party that's quite happy to allow the um, economy to not perform especially well in the run-up to the 2024 presidential election, because of what that would mean for Biden's chances of re-election. So, um, yes, the kind of fiscal policy that we will be getting, I suspect, will be very different from that optimal kind of policy, even if we do get to the effective lower bound in the US. Let's stick with that and that thought that, um, that actual policy may diverge from optimal policy, fiscal policy, due to these political economy considerations. The US is a great case, much depends on, on the midterms. What about the UK then? A couple of episodes ago, you hosted a discussion on the UK's market meltdown. Even since then, the UK's politics has changed with the new government under Sunak, of course. Uh, how is How are political economy considerations here in the UK going to change what fiscal policy 
could actually do in the coming recession. Sure. So the new government's immediate priority, it seems, is to try and restore credibility both with financial markets, but also households and businesses in terms of having a grip on the public finances. So that means that there's likely to be a fair degree of fiscal consolidation announced in the forthcoming autumn statement. Um, quite how much it's a little bit up for grabs at the moment, and it depends precisely on sort of the interest rate assumptions that are used by the Office of Budget Responsibility when it comes to its forecast, the kind of growth numbers that are assumed, and also what the government's targeting in terms of how much of a cushion it wants to have against um, its various fiscal targets. But it seems something in the order of £50 billion of fiscal consolidation over the five-year forecast horizon is set to be announced. Um, And I suspect the government will be able to pass that, and that sort of deals with its immediate short-term issues of restoring credibility, a lot of that work already being done. I think the interesting issue will come next year when, as you say, expect to be in a recession, in which case perhaps some of what you might want to do on fiscal policy would shift and it's away from uh, re-establishing credibility and it's more about using that credibility that you established to ease fiscal policy. Certainly that will be the demands I expect of some of the government backbenchers increasingly as they turn their attention towards what's likely to be an election in the not too distant future. Um, and the government might find it very difficult in that context to hold together a governing coalition as the different demands on fiscal policy pull in different directions, some wanting easier policy, the government feeling that it's under quite tight financial market constraints, all of which is to say that it's definitely not going to be questions of optimal policy that will be driving decision making, it will be the hard political calculation of how to keep a governing coalition intact in the run up to an election, and the sense in which financial markets themselves might be providing a constraint on policy options as well. And even policies like the the energy price guarantee, the more limited form that that's intended to take next year could become harder to sustain in, say, a second um, cold winter that, that, that may be characterised by some degree of, of gas shortage. But let's, so I want to say some words on, on, on Europe, because in the Eurozone, in the EU, there are also interesting political economy considerations that are going to drive what fiscal policy does. And in particular, the Growth and Stability Pact, the European Union's fiscal rules, remain temporarily suspended. So so European member states have something of a window of opportunity to spend more than ordinarily. And interestingly, it's actually been Germany which has so far led the charge in doing that with the 200 billion euro package passed there recently, which included a partial energy price cap. Now, Germany did the, the, the spending in a, in a way that was sort of slightly off balance sheet. It meant that it technically didn't breach the German debt break, the constitutional debt break. It wouldn't have breached the EU fiscal rules had they still been in place. But really, I, I find it symbolically important that it was Germany who's gone f- first and furthest on um, providing a, a you know, fiscal offset to, to these economic headwinds. Um, and that then 
leads you to think, well, what are the other what are the other big member states going to do? France is currently drawing up a budget that foresees something like a 5% deficit in 2023. Now, a divided parliament may mean that there's wrangling about that, but that's the initial proposal. And the new Italian government, while certainly not leaning as fiscally profligate as some may have feared, will no doubt want to spend more than the initial proposals that Draghi had drawn up. So there's this window of opportunity to spend more. Um, On the other hand, the UK experience... um, with financial markets may be somewhat chastening, especially to Eurozone economies that that, that have kind of a history of being very dependent on, um, on, on, on spreads. And remember that quantitative tightening in the Eurozone is coming, which may also make it more difficult for, um, for, for European economies to sort of open the fiscal floodgates in, in the recession. Okay, well, that's fiscal policy. Well, the other big arm of macro management is, of course, monetary policy. And monetary policy is also in flux already ahead, ahead of the recession. So the hiking cycle has been very steep. There are now just the most tentative signs of the pace of central bank tightening slowing down somewhat as policymakers reflect on the amount of, of hiking they've already done, the possibility of, the, of, of an overshoot of overhiking policy, um, that the inflation dynamics may soon start to see a moderation in the headline rates of inflation. And as the coming recession, you know, which isn't in too many official forecasts at the moment, but is starting to enter some of them, and is certainly a, you know, a, big, a big consideration, I think, in central bank policymaking. So you've seen signals that the pace of hikes is going to step down in Europe, in the UK, uh, in the US, it's also been the case in Australia and Canada and Norway. All these central banks given hints they're going to slow down the pace of, of, of hikes. I would say, though, that in the US's case, in the Fed's case, they've been very keen to avoid the narrative that that marks a pivot in monetary policy. The Fed has to tighten financial conditions, generate a rise in unemployment that then gets on top of inflationary pressures if they want to meet their mandate. So you see a very careful line be, being kind of um, being trodden by Powell, where he, on the one hand, signals a slowing in the pace of rate hikes, but on the other hand, says this is not a policy pivot. The terminal rate is still going to end up well below neutral policy is going to be tight and indeed a recession is a risk in that scenario but luke that's what monetary policymakers are up to now but thinking ahead to the next recession we've been sort of wrestling between ourselves with the question of whether the next recession marks a return to the effective lower bound zero interest rates negative in some cases quantitative easing or what, that seems a long way away now, but you know, thinking ahead, that's where it could get to. Or whether persistent inflation pressures mean that rates actually remain elevated; they don't get all the way back to zero. Do you want to talk us through the sort of the terms of that debate, the considerations there? Sure. Well, you actually summarised it pretty well there. But the way in which we've approached this question is to consult a variety of monetary policy rules, and the way that these things work is that you feed in your inflation, unemployment, perhaps growth forecasts, and then 
they spit out a quote-unquote appropriate policy rate given that macro environment. Um, and there's all sorts of caveats around these kind of policy rules. And indeed, the reason for consulting a variety of them is that each of them had their slightly different specifications that put different weights on different ways you might approach that kind of trade-off. And none of them are perfect. And indeed, none of them take into account especially well the way in which the Fed's mandate has changed from a standard inflation target to one of a, an average inflation target whereby it's meant to consider deviations from inflation in the past. All that being said, these are quite good tools for systematically bringing together a variety of different economic inputs and thinking about the different trade-offs between them. And I think it's fair to say that the consistent message from a variety of those rules is that given our inflation unemployment forecasts for the US over the next couple of years, then it would be appropriate for interest rates to return back down to the effective lower bound. And indeed, that is consistent with uh, um, the weight of academic evidence that was building up after the financial crisis, which pointed to the idea that effective lower bound episodes were going to become much more frequent in the future, in part because the equilibrium rate of interest, the normal rate of interest is that much lower. And so shocks are more likely to tip you back into position where you're stuck uh, at zero. Now, interestingly, what the policy rules that we were looking at show is that really it is just about back down to the effective lower bound that would be appropriate policy. And that's in quite stark contrast to what these rules were saying after the global financial crisis and after the pandemic. And in both those cases, they were suggesting that the appropriate interest rate, given the inflation unemployment dynamics, was significantly negative interest rates. Now, of course, the way that the Federal Reserve in the US responded to those kind of signals from these policy rules was not to take interest rates negative, but was to launch unconventional policy quantitative easing. And so it, I think it has to be that these policy rules are, are telling you that that's the kind of interest rate structure that you need very, very negative interest rates, that that would be the necessary condition to think that this is going to lead not only to zero lower bound, effective lower bound episode, but also more QE. And so that's why on the basis of what these rules are telling us, we think it is just that interest rates get down to zero in the US, but we don't see a repeat of QE this time. Now, of course, that is highly contingent on the inflation profile that we're feeding into the rules. And if it turns out that underlying inflation pressure is stickier than we expect, then absolutely interest rates may not fall all the way back down to zero. But I think it is very likely that any sort of recession that's meaningful enough to start to bring inflation back under control would be one in which the Fed starts cutting interest rates. So quite back down to zero will depend on a variety of variables, but definitely a cutting cycle. And I should say that the other very important thing outside of the inflation dynamics is to bring this conversation full circle is, of course, the kind of fiscal path that we see in the US as well. Yeah, absolutely. So fiscal policy is, is one of those key contingencies to what monetary policy does. So as a, as a closing thought then to that, we seem to have learnt over, over the UK's recent experience more about the interdependence of monetary and fiscal policy. And I think maybe our, our conversation brings that out a little bit as well. Do we think that that 
interdependence is going to be tested, stretched, stressed during the recession. And I, I have in mind, Luke, that on the one that policymakers are responding to somewhat conflicting incentives, high and in, still high inflation means monetary policy has to has to become tight, perhaps remain tight for a little while before cutting into the recession. Um, but growth will be will be slowing sharply, and the first inclination of, of politicians will be to support the economy with fiscal policy there. So are we starting to see the beginning of some kind of, of conflict with monetary and fiscal policy? Look, as you say, at a trivial level, there is this interdependence between monetary and fiscal policy in the sense that if policymakers are trying to deliver broadly stable growth in demand, which tends to be um, the objective of policy, then because both of these tools push on aggregate demand, it sort of makes sense that if you're doing more of that work with fiscal policy, then less of that work needs to be done with monetary policy and and vice versa, right? So you can see monetary and fiscal policy moving in different directions all of the time. We tend to call that monetary offset. This is just the idea that the job of monetary policy is to offset the shocks that the economy is hit, including fiscal policy. And it's also the case that you could see monetary and fiscal policy moving in exactly the same direction. That's the case of the zero lower bound episode that I described previously when monetary policy is constrained, it's trying to be as dovish as possible, but still can't get enough stimulus, you'd expect to also see fiscal policy trying to boost demand as well. So it's perfectly normal both to see monetary and fiscal policy moving in seemingly different directions and also moving seemingly in the same direction. There's nothing especially weird about either of those things in and of themselves. But what's crucial is that that happens within the context of a clear institutional setup where the objective of price stability is absolutely clear and that there is within policymakers a division of labour as to who is trying to achieve what and that they're all broadly agreed on the merits of those targets. And the reason that's so important is it is just the case that there are certain kinds of fiscal policy a government could be running that effectively make it impossible for monetary policymakers to achieve price stability, try as hard as they might if fiscal policy were to keep on easing and keep on easing and keep on easing, even into an inflationary environment, it could well easily become the case that the price level becomes indeterminate, you're into extremely high inflation environment, and monetary policy simply can't respond and deal with that in part because of what that would do to the public finances, the interest on what the government would be paying. And this is a case that's often referred to as fiscal dominance. So rather than it being monetary policy that offsets everything that moves last, that provides discipline in the economy and stabilizes prices, monetary policy instead becomes subordinated to the needs of fiscal policy and government financing constraints around that. And and that's the deeper level of interdependence between the two of them. They have to be working in an institutional framework where there there is harmony between monetary and fiscal policy. And it is ultimately a political choice as to whether there is support for that kind of institutional setup. And arguably over the last couple of months or so, that was somewhat put to the test in the UK. There were certainly a lot of people talking about the risks of fiscal dominance around Um, the last government's fiscal policies. Now, as was the fact that we sort of very quickly returned to forms of 
monetary and fiscal orthodoxy goes to show that there are quite significant guardrails against falling into this paradigm of fiscal dominance, but it is very much still a risk out there, I think. Yeah, and I think even it's not just confined to the UK, there's been the first kind of mutterings from politicians in the Eurozone that perhaps the ECB is over-tightening and Christine Lagarde, the president of the ECB, in turn pushes back in, in, in press conferences reminding politicians that fiscal packages should be you know, targeted and, and, and temporary rather than um, working in the opposite direction to, to, to monetary policy. So I think it's a growing theme. Um, especially as the recession develops, to watch whether monetary and fiscal policy are working together or actually starting to, to, to butt heads with each other. But Luke, that was a fascinating discussion on a topic that I think is going to be a really crucial driver for what happens in, in macro and in markets as the recession we're forecasting gets underway. So thank you, Luke, and thank you to you for listening to Macrobytes. As ever, please like and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Please get in touch with us if you're enjoying the show. If you have any questions for us, macrobytes at aberdeen.com. An email address that's also in the podcast description. But until next time, goodbye and good luck out there. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.